Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today is Dr. David Hogg. He is the Associate Dean of Beeson Divinity School, my fellow laborer in the work of this great institution, has been with us, I think this is your fourth year? Third year. Third year. We're already depending on you so much. I'm extending your uh, longevity. But welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Because I think this is the first time we've actually had you on the Beeson Podcast, uh, it might be good for you to tell us a little bit about your own background, kind of uh, where you came from, a little bit about your family, and uh, what led you to Beeson. Sure, yeah. I was uh, born and raised in Toronto, Canada. There I grew up in a, in a Christian environment. Uh, I thought it was normal growing up that parents and grandparents and everyone was Christian if you were in the church. It wasn't until later that I realized that, no, this is not normal, but it is, it is a blessing to be sure. And so I was raised in that sort of environment, enjoying all kinds of good teaching. I uh, went to a good Bible-believing church, uh, solid preaching, good singing, uh, I think that's always a, a wonderful sign of a of a mm. church with vitality is the singing is, mm. is really strong. But at any rate, I went uh, to the University of Toronto to do my undergraduate uh, there in medieval history, and that's where I really got most interested in things medieval. Mm. And I uh, studied there with a number of the professors from the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies. And that's a that's a very famous place for doing medieval work, isn't it? It is. It's very well known. It was founded by Etienne Gilson. Uh, back in the mid-20th century, earlier 20th century, and uh, has been a, uh, continues to be a wonderful place where all kinds of scholars from all over the world go and study and teach and uh, do their research. Uh, so it was wonderful to be there, to study there. But while I was there, I always had the curiosity of, should I be in the church? Should I be a pastor? I didn't know. It was, I was uncertain. So I looked into the possibilities of doing a, an MDiv degree. And as I looked around, I asked some friends, where should I go? What should I do? And the answer that came back fairly consistently was uh, to, to attend Westminster Seminary uh, because of my connections with some of the Presbyterian world. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents and grandparents were both Presbyterians, and, uh, and they had known names like Sinclair Ferguson, Eric Alexander, and these sorts of people. The great preachers. Some yeah. of the great preachers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I always thought if I could preach half as good as they could, that's the place <laughs> I want to be. Uh, but anyway, I went to Westminster and enjoyed my time there immensely. met some wonderful uh, friends and, of course, had uh, some very well-known, at least in Presbyterian circles, well-known professors teach me. And that was a, a great learning experience. Westminster is in Philadelphia. The, that mm-hmm. campus, yeah, the Philadelphia campus. Yeah. Uh, and while there, I continued to wonder, should I be a pastor? Should I, be, should I go on the academic uh, route? And uh, long story short, I ended up taking the opportunity to go to the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And which was a fairly easy decision. My wife is British, and so for her it was going home again. Mm. Uh, so we went there, and I studied there for three years and finished my Ph.D., and, and then I got hired there for a short time. Um, it wasn't a permanent position mm-hmm. with a family. One likes a little bit of permanence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I stayed there and uh, enjoyed it there, and, and from there I went on to teach at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, uh, and then three years ago, uh, Man named Timothy George came and said, would you be interested? Well, I met you at Southeastern. I had known about your work. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your doctoral study and your your work in just a moment. But I'd heard that you were a really good teacher and a good scholar. 
And uh, we were looking for someone who could do both of those and also help us move forward in the area of administration, academic administration. And so you really are the academic dean of Beeson Divinity School. You work with the faculty evaluating their work with all kinds of things, uh, curriculum, scheduling, uh, student complaints, you name it. Uh, if it touches the academic world, then Dr. David Hogg is our go-to guy. And we're just delighted that the Lord led you here and your family, your beautiful family. Tell us uh, your wife's name and your three sons' names. Yes, uh, my wife Sarah, uh, a little bit of trivia. She was born and raised in, in Birmingham, England, mm. and now, of course, in Birmingham, uh, Alabama is where we live. Uh, and we have three boys, Thomas, Oliver, and Edward, who are 12, 9, and 7. Just a lovely family, and uh, you're doing a wonderful job with us. We're so delighted to claim you as a colleague and a friend. And what I want to talk about today on the Beeson Podcast is the subject of your doctoral research at St. Andrews. Uh, Tell us what you wrote on and why. Yes, I wrote on the theology of Anselm of Canterbury, uh, and the the particular interest I had was uh, looking at his works to see what what brings them all together. Uh, his works have been known, of course, very well for for a long time. But one of the questions that lingers is: is there any connection between those works, or are they just occasional works written for specific reasons at specific times or to specific people? And looking at his theological method and the content of his works and some themes that go through all of them. I wrote on how all of his works are connected in various ways and that this is the the life work, a body, if you will, of work of one man who was trying to convey through a number of different writings a fairly singular uh, purpose. You know, Anselm uh, is a person whose name would be known to those who've taken, say, basic church history or theology in college or seminary, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if they were Catholic, they would know Anselm. Well, maybe less so if they were evangelical Protestants. Uh, if they knew anything about him, they would know that he's famous for one of the arguments for the existence of God, the so-called ontological argument. And then also for his work on the atonement of Christ, Cordeus Homo, why God became a man. And we want to talk about both of those works in a moment, but I want to ask you to say a little bit about the subtitle of your book. Out of your research in St. Andrews, you have written a book called Anselm of Canterbury, The Beauty of Theology. Now, when most people think of theology, beauty is not a synonym that jumps into their minds. So what do you mean by the beauty of theology with reference to Anselm? Yes, it came out of reading Anselm over and over and over again, and as I was thinking about him, and there were a couple of words that kept jumping out at me, and they had to do with concepts uh, like fittingness and beauty and coherency, these sorts of concepts, and I noticed that they just they just kept popping up over and over and over again, and in the current day as homo, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that one of the things that that he was interested in in addressing was theology with respect to its beauty. And and what he meant by that is, is a very common medieval idea that we don't we don't use too much these days. And in our theology today we tend to think in terms of propositions and logical argumentation. And of course in the Middle Ages they thought that was important as well. But they also believed that theology should have a certain beauty. Things should fit. And if something doesn't seem to fit with the character of God or something doesn't fit with the nature of redemption or something is out of step or doesn't seem to reflect clearly a connection and a coherency and a consistency with what we already know and is sure, 
then that's at least a, a little red flag that maybe there's something wrong here, that there's no beauty, there's an ugliness about, mm. uh, about theology. And so that was part of what I traced as beauty as a category in which to, to as a category through which to look at theology. And your book, uh, Anselm of Canterbury, The Beauty of Theology, has been published in the Great Theologian series. Who's the publisher? Ashgate Publishers. They do a lot of medieval Yes, publishing. excellent publisher. Uh, now, place Anselm for us in history. Give us a little thumbnail biographical sketch. Uh, who was this person, Anselm of Canterbury? Yes, well, his, he was born in 1033 and he died in 1109. The, the, perhaps the best way to situate him for anyone who may not be uh, as familiar with his life and work is to uh, to recall uh, the, the date 1066, uh, mm-hmm. right sort of in the middle of his life. In 1066, we have the Battle of Hastings, yeah. yes. When, to make a very long and convoluted story short, William of Normandy, Duke William, had crossed over the English Channel to claim what he thought was the throne for himself. He thought that was his rightful opportunity, and so he did, and that led to the Battle of Hastings, which led to the Norman invasion, depending on which side you are. If you're in England, it's the Norman invasion. If you're in Normandy, it's the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> but at any rate, King William became King William I of England, uh, won that battle. And it's in the midst of those sorts of even international events that Anselm was growing and thinking and writing and so forth. And, and there were other events, uh, certainly around his life. But the most significant reason I mentioned that date is because when William I came to the throne, he needed to find a new archbishop. And uh, he looked around, and he found the, the best man he could. His name was Lanfranc. And Lanfranc had been the direct mentor and supervisor to Anselm. And uh, Lanfranc be- accepted that call to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he did a very fine job in that. And it was, it was after he passed away, some years later, Anselm himself was asked to become the next Archbishop of Canterbury. Because, not only because of his connection with Lanfranc and with several royal houses, but he had done a tremendous job. He'd entered the mon- a monastery uh, at a fairly young age, and he'd been a monk, and then a, a prior. A prior is the second in command, kind of like the academic dean <laughs> of a, a divinity school, and he'd been there, and then he'd become uh, the abbot, which is the head of, of a monastery. And an abbot in the Middle Ages was somebody who d- didn't just think and pray and sing and, and do these sorts of things. He had to look after all of the administrative details, all the lands that the monastery owned in, in Normandy, parts of France, parts of England and so forth. And he'd proven himself not only as a great thinker and writer and pastor, but also as a man who had these administrative leadership skills. And mm. so uh, in the midst of some very tumultuous times, Anselm distinguished himself. A good preparation for being an archbishop. Yes, very good preparation. But now he was not born in England, right? No, he was not. He was born in northern Italy, a place called Aosta, which still exists today. And uh, he was there till he was in his teens. His mother passed away. He and his father apparently, from what we can tell, didn't have a great relationship. And so he left home and wandered Europe. Uh, for a time, and that's when he found the monasteries and decided he wanted that sort of life. Now, we used to call Anselm the father of scholasticism. I think that's maybe a little questionable for some scholars today, but clearly uh, he's kind of is at the, the intersection of several different currents and intellectual inquiry and life in Europe. Uh, talk a little bit about that. He is, yes. There's, a, there's still a raging debate as far as anyone can rage and debate over this <laughs> matter, but there's a, there's a bit of a debate over when scholasticism really starts, when it doesn't, what's going on, how do we define it. Scholasticism, I think, could probably best simply be defined, most simply be defined, as uh, the, the method of instruction and learning and study that was developed alongside the growth and, and establishment of universities. 
Now, we don't have a definite date when universities started. They didn't start as universities. They started as what we call cathedral schools mm -hmm. and then developed into universities. And so there's no absolute date when you can say this is when a university started or the university idea started. It developed over time. So Anselm was in this period when the universities aren't universities yet. They're just barely cathedral schools. But there is this shift in thinking of how do we teach? And Anselm's desire to teach was to ask students questions as his own uh, fellow monks, to engage them in discussion, to have them read texts and think about those things carefully and then come back. And, and uh, the idea was in the Middle Ages that you read on your own, you then discussed with others, and then once you'd figured that out, you could then go and proclaim it or teach it to someone else. And, and this method and this way of thinking, this dialectic, uh, became foundational, was becoming foundational in Anselm's day. So that's why some will say he's the father of scholasticism, because he's on the very front edge of that as it's being developed more and more in these universities as they become uh, known as. But at the same time, he's still a monk, and he's still very much a part of this world of monasticism in which he is not thinking of himself as a scholar, a professor, a university uh, a faculty member. He's thinking of himself as, an, as a prior or an abbot or a, a simple monk. And so for him, this is just the natural way people talk, like you and I are now. Ask questions, give answers, respond, think again, you know, these sorts of things. This is the way he is thinking. So if, if we were to go back in time and ask him, are, are you the father of scholasticism? Uh, he would say, I'm not sure what scholasticism is. He may say, no, I'm not married. I'm not married. <laughs> this is exactly right, yes. So, yes, yeah, so I, think, I think there is a debate there, but he's, he's definitely in that period in history when we're moving from one type of education through the monasteries into another type, cathedral schools and universities. So he's right in that. So in some ways, at the intersection of the monastic and the scholastic yes. traditions, right. as they mix and merge and move into another period. Yes, yes. So and one of the things I've always been impressed about Anselm is the way in which he couches his theology as a form of prayer. Yes. Could you say a little bit about that? I think that's the most important thing to, uh, to, to speak on, actually, because if you read people who are interacting with, for example, his proslogion, where he has the so-called ontological argument, where he's talking about the existence of God, there he couches everything in prayer. And yet when you read these articles and essays and chapters and books that come out on the proslogion, the vast majority of them disregard all of that. And they take it as a rational, intellectual, logical argument. And they attack it as such, or they defend it as such. And they forget that it's prayer. It's mm -hmm. couched in prayer. It's part of prayer. And this is one of the differences between a monastic approach to learning and a more scholastic one. Not that scholastics forgot God and forgot prayer. They didn't. But for a monk, it's part of the way they breathe. It's the air they breathe. It's the food they eat. Prayer is, is, is much, much more integrated into their whole life. And so when Anselm wrote, it was very important that people understood, to him it was very important that people understood that you cannot do theology, you cannot think properly and clearly apart from the wisdom of God, apart from the revelation of God. This is how we proceed. We, we start with God, and he gives us what we need to move forward. So prayer is an absolutely vital and foundational part of his theology. It sounds very Augustinian to me also, because it's, of course, the confessions, that's Augustine's mm -hmm. way of doing theology. Oh, very much so. I mean, he constantly said, if, if I write anything Augustine wouldn't write or wrote against Augustine, then, then disregard mine and throw it away. And, and so he's always clearly if, uh, reading and very much affecting. A man after my own heart. There you go. I like it. Tell us a little bit about the ontological argument. There may be listeners who just don't eat, breathe, and live medieval 
theology. What is the ontological argument? You've told us it's couched in prayer in the proslogion. Yes. What is it? Well, the, the famous line out of the proslogion is the original uh, statement that Anselm makes in the, the opening chapters. He says, God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived, which is one of those statements you have to read several hundred times before <laughs> it really makes sense. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Anselm then goes on in the second part. It's often forgotten, but the second part of his argument is God is greater than that which can be conceived. And what he's doing in the proslogion is he's, is he's saying, as we approach God, and we seek to define who God is, we have to keep a couple of things in mind. First, we have to keep God's nature in mind. And he is both imminent and transcendent. He is both very near to us and he reveals himself to us, but he is also completely other. He's not like us in every way. And there are things about God we cannot know. In, in the Proslogion, Anselm does quote from First Timothy, and he says, you are light inaccessible. Who knows what light inaccessible looks like? But he's quoting from Paul there. And so in this argument for the existence of God, Anselm begins by saying, God, you must reveal yourself to us. We can't prove you apart from your own revelation. And if we could prove you, the argument more or less goes, we, if we could prove you apart from revelation then would you really be gone? And, uh, and so, so he, he is wrestling with those questions, and he's saying, so your existence depends on your revelation to us, and when you reveal yourself to us, we see both this imminent and transcendent quality about you. And this, is, this leads us to, I think, the most significant turn in, in what Anselm is doing in this argument. And it's this, he's, he's saying, if I were to prove the existence of a supreme being, that he simply existed then your answer to me should be, so what? Mm. Who really cares that there is a supreme being who has tremendous power somewhere out there? Anselm's not interested in a supreme being. He's interested in the God who reveals himself to humanity. And so for that reason, when he's arguing for the existence of God, he's saying, I don't want simply to say God is a supreme being. I want to say what he's like. Mm. So it's not just a, or to, perhaps to, to rephrase it, it's I'm not just looking for a what. I'm looking for a who. Mm. I'm looking for a per not a person, but I'm looking for, for a God who reveals himself in, in kindness and gentleness and love and compassion or whatever he may be like, whatever it may be like, if he's going to be politically correct about it, he's asked the question. Well, there's no point in saying there's a supreme being unless you know what that being is like. Mm. So the ontological argument is about defining, as the name suggests, the being of God who God is. It's not just that he is. It's mm. who he is. And if you, if you read through the Proslogion, which is, is a very, very short p uh, piece, you discover he spends a lot of time talking about the attributes of God. And unfortunately, most scholars don't talk about that. They talk about the that then which nothing greater can be conceived. Well, as an idea, let's examine that. And as a philosophical notion, let's un un you know, unpack that. And they all, many of them end up disagreeing with Anselm and saying this is not a good way to argue. But when he talks about that, then which nothing greater can be conceived, he's talking about the wonder and the grandeur and the glory of God that's revealed in Scripture. And so this comes back to prayer. This comes back to the method of his theology. He cannot theologize apart from God. And I think it explains one reason why Karl Barth was so attracted to Anselm and wrote that little treatise, little but profound, Anselm Fides Querens Intellectum, that is, faith in search of understanding, which, of course, is a statement Anselm used to describe his method. I think that's very different in a way from, you might say, the Thomistic way of doing theology, where you're looking at the world, you're looking at the evidence of God in the world. It's much more evidentialist. 
uh, and arguing from the observable effects of God in the world back to a prime mover, a first cause, Anselm seems to want to connect the definition of God with the reality of God in a way that's almost intuitive. Yeah. For Certainly for a Christian, you, can't, a Christian, you yes. can't do it any other way. And for the unbeliever, I think it would also stand to reason, well, how could you prove the existence of a God who is transcendent unless, they'd re- unless that God had revealed himself? It would be impossible. Now, we can't uh, close a Beeson podcast on Anselm without talking a little bit about the doctrine of the atonement, uh, which, of course, our students all learn when they read uh, Cordeus Homo, Why God Became a Man, his most famous treatise. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that treatise and what is Anselm trying to do there? Why God, Cordeus Homo, Why God Became a Man, he he is wrestling with the question of the purpose of the incarnation, which is, of course, atonement, that we might be made right with God. When I think of the Curdeus Homo, I think of two things. I think of Matthias Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece, and I think of a jigsaw puzzle. Two very different things, but they help me think about the Curdeus Homo. The reason I think of uh, Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece is, is you may recall there, and if you haven't seen this, you, you, you can easily look it up online and see a picture of it. There, Christ is hanging on the cross, surrounded by various individuals, but one of those is, and a very prominent one, is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has, if I remember correctly, a book in one hand, or maybe the Tanakh, it may be some portion of a, of a prophet. I can't remember if it's identified there, but he's holding uh, a book in one hand, and with another hand that is unusually large, it's out of proportion, and this finger pointing from this hand is, again, unusually long to Christ. Now, I'm not here to talk about Grunewald or his art or anything, but when I look at that, that's John the Baptist saying, here's the text, here's the reality, and he's the one who points to the reality. That's what Anselm was doing in the Curdeus Homo. Anselm was not writing a work that was a, exposed, supposed to be all-inclusive or complete in everything we need to know about Christology or the atonement or any of these questions. He was answering some very particular questions that some monks had about, well, why did God come? Why do we have Christ? Why did he die on the cross? Can you help us flesh this out in a way that we could explain it to other people? And when I think of that, I think this is what Anselm is doing. He he recognizes that the Curdeus Homo is not redemption itself. Doctrine is not redemption. Christ is redemption. Mm -hmm. And just as John the Baptist points and was a pointer in both the painting and in reality to Christ, so the Curdeus Homo is itself not the total locus and, and everything there is to say on the atonement. It is simply another finger, as it were, pointing towards Christ and saying he is the one who redeems. Which brings me to the other part, the jigsaw puzzle. Why, is, why do I think of the jigsaw puzzle when I think of the Curdeus Homo? Well, the Curdeus Homo, the famous, there's a famous little phrase in there, a famous two words actually, called remoto Christo which is simply the Latin for apart from Christ. And the, the one who was interacting with Anselm was a student, who's a real student, and his name, his real name, unfortunately, was Bozo. <laughs> uh, before clowns came into existence, people could be called Bozo and nobody worried about this, but, uh, but here we have it. Bozo asked Anselm, could you talk about Curdeus Homo, why God became a man, but don't do it with respect to Christ? which seems a very odd thing to be asking. How can you talk about the atonement? How can you talk about what Christ has done, but don't talk about Christ? Anselm takes up the challenge and says, yes, I'd love to. That would be just fine. Well, how does he do that? Well, what he does is throughout the Curdeus Homo, he has pieces of doctrines and truths and scripture references and so forth, none of which necessarily speak directly to Christ in the way that he'd been asked not to, 
But they begin to form a picture like a jigsaw puzzle. And he puts piece after piece, chapter after chapter together so that by the end of it or close to the end of it, he then turns to Bozo and says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, so what do you think is left? And Bozo is left saying the only thing left is that a God-man must, have, must have, have dwelt and lived amongst us and died for our sins. Otherwise, you know, God wouldn't be God and we would have no salvation or hope. And that's inconsistent. It's not beautiful. It's ugly. That is inconsistent mm. with the nature of God. And so he's led to the point of saying, therefore, there must be this, uh, there must be this God-man. And then he goes on to, to, of course, flesh that out now that he's accomplished it. And that's part of the reason why I called um, my book what I did, The Beauty of Theology. That's another example of how when, when we live in a world that's utterly coherent because it's been revealed to us by God, we can start anywhere. And we can, and we can, as it were, we can start anywhere and show the necessity of the incarnation and the necessity of an atonement, and help people understand that that God has all of these pieces in hand, and He knows where they go. And if we, as Anselm would tell us, if if we follow His word and we know who He is, we can help people put these pieces together as well and see the necessity of a God Man who died on the cross for us. If you wanted to study or read about Anselm, of course, your book Anselm of Canterbury. The Beauty of Theology is one good place to go. But if you wanted to read Anselm himself, now I have here uh, in my office the um, collected edition in Latin of all of Anselm's works, the Opera Omni, Anselmi. But if you if you don't want to go into that kind of depth or you can't find this wonderful edition, where would you encourage people to look? Well, there are a few places you can go. Very recently, in fact, in the last uh, six months, I think it was, uh, Sally Vaughan has published a new biography of Anselm. It's in a series uh, published on the Archbishops of Canterbury, and it's a fine volume. As we would expect from Sally Vaughan, she's written a number of other works. She's a well-known Anselm scholar. Uh, that would be a, a very recent work to read. Uh, another uh, is R.W. Southern. He's the classic mm-hmm. Anselm scholar. He is now passed away. He's uh, taught at Oxford for many, many years. He wrote uh, Anselm of Canterbury, uh, Portrait in a Landscape. And it's against a biography mm-hmm. uh, uh, in which he deals a little bit with theology, but again, gives a, a good sense of who Anselm is and what he did. Those two works, I think, in terms of coming to grips with the man himself and some of his theology are important because Sally Vaughan will look much more at his leadership and his administrative skills. And R.W. Southern really understands Anselm as a monk, as what it meant to be a monk and why that mattered. So those two together, I think, would give that, um, give that some weight. As for the theology of Anselm, uh, uh, I, I, you mentioned it earlier. I think, although it's a bit thick uh, in terms of dense, in terms of its, uh, not its size, but its, its weight, uh, its significance is Karl Barth's work, um, Fides Quarens Intellectum. I mean, it's it's a tremendous work in which he really understands Anselm's method and what he was doing theologically. Uh, in fact, there's a an interesting story towards the end of Karl Barth's life. He was in a radio interview, and he was asked, uh, you, "You've had this incredible career. You've read so much. You've written so much. Who has been the you know some who who have been some of the great." influences on your life and without hesitating he answered and said Anselm of Canterbury if you want to know what I have written simply go back and read Anselm and you'll know everything else I've done Mm. and uh, it's intriguing I think there is some truth to that that in the theological method whether successful or not each can judge for themselves Bart very much seemed to embody that 
faith-seeking understanding. Some people would say Anselm is a lot easier to read than Karl Barth. <laughs> yes, probably so, probably so. <laughs> but in some ways, really foundational. Yeah. We're almost out of time, but I wonder if you'd just say a word about the Middle Ages. You're, you're a medievalist and a rare Baptist medievalist. There are not many of you. Why uh, do so many Christians know so little about the Middle Ages, and why do you think it's uh, important for us to know more? Indeed, I, th- I think we, we know little about the Middle Ages because of a certain, perhaps I shouldn't put it this way, but there's a certain arrogance, I think, that, that it's not on purpose. It's not uh, something we pursue or even think about, but we assume that, well, it, especially in the Protestant world, well, if it's Catholic, we're not so sure about it, so we set it aside, and we think of the Middle Ages as very Catholic. Reformation saved us all. Luther came along, uh, even though Luther was probably more Catholic than we might like to realize, and po- you know, the popular opinion has it. But there's this sort of sense that, that the church ended with Augustine and starts up again with, with Luther or Calvin or one of our favorites or so forth. But in the Middle Ages... Uh, it wasn't nobody thought of themselves as Catholic in the way that we think now. Uh, they thought of themselves as just part of the church, and that's the way we should think of them. They are our mothers and fathers in the faith. Uh, they did build foundations for us upon which we we uh, we go. In fact, if you look at Calvin's Institutes, after the Bible, the most quoted figure is Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th century uh, monk and abbot, and he saw that as very important for his own theology. So. So there's a, a misconception that the Middle Ages somehow just isn't up to par when, in fact, we read the Reformers and recognize they are drawing on them all the time and cannot do without them. Uh, so, so I th- think there's a reason for that. Why I think we should know the Middle Ages a little better, uh, I'll simply say this. In our day and age, we are constantly being told by secular society that reason and rationality is the context in which we might put faith if we want to. In other words, we live in a very rational, so-called scientific day. And if you want to believe, that's fine. We'll put you over in this corner of, of this little world we call, you know, rational, modern, postmodern, whatever you want to call it. Um, but in the Middle Ages, they understood things differently. They understood that we don't start with human knowledge and human reason and rationality. We start with God. And they flipped it around. And for them, instead of rationality and human reason being the context into which faith fits, they started by saying, no, faith and God is the context into which rationality and thinking fits. And it's amazing that there's a resurgence now of people going back to the Middle Ages and asking questions, what have we missed? And there, be, there's, there is a movement, particularly within theology, but also within philosophy, asking, perhaps we had the wrong context to begin with. Perhaps we should be thinking more about faith as a legitimate, bona fide, and indeed helpful and healthy way of beginning and then moving to rationality rather than the other way around. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. David Hogg. He is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs here at Beeson Divinity School. He is the author of Anselm of Canterbury, The Beauty of Theology, in the Great Theologian series from Ashgate Press. Thank you, Dr. Hogg, for this very enlightening conversation. Thank you very much. It was a joy to be here. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.